Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. That's kind of fancy that you can put people in a little waiting room and then bring them on. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Usually um, I'm hosting it, so I don't really get to see that side of it. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm yeah. new to Instagram, so uh, I'm learning, learning on the job. Very nice. Yeah. Nice to see you tonight. How's Thanks everything? for having me. Doing all right. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. Good. Good. Yeah. So um, to kick off, I want to talk to you about how you got started and uh, your, your career journey. Well, man, we're going way back. So I'm 52, and I've been training dogs since I was 12. So it's 40 years. So I, uh, my parents had dogs before me. So I was born into a dog family. Actually, technically, I guess it was nine because I raised a couple of guide dog puppies. And then when I was done with that, they said I could have my own dog. And those are kind of rough times. You know, back then, there was no food and training. And uh, it was kind of tough. It was kind of, everybody did compulsion training. So I started there. And you didn't train a dog formally till it was six months old. That was just, I don't know, that was the rule. Um, so it did whatever it wanted. Then six months, you started training it. And I remember right before I went to college, I had a dog, a puppy. And I'm like, well, this is dumb. Like, I can't train it. I'll just teach it tricks. And the tricks looked a lot like obedience, right? I was just using food. So therefore, it was a trick. And then when I was six months old, I, you know, added compulsion because that's what you did. And then it was just kind of up and down. I went to college. I came home. Um, then when I had a place, my own house, where I could have a dog, I wanted a dog that could do everything. And if you look over the breeds that are out there, there are very few dogs that can do agility. Well, there was no agility back then, but obedience. And uh, I wanted to try protection sports and herding and all these tracking. And Belgian Shepherds and German Shepherds were kind of it. There's just nothing else out there that has that kind of range. And so I bought a show line Belgian Shepherd, Belgian Trevuren. Uh, and I did a lot of stuff with that dog. I, uh, I did get a Schutzen 3 on the dog. I never want to work that hard again. I never will work that hard again. And so now I buy working line dogs because they do 90% of the work and I just show up. Uh, with a show dog, you know, you know, I had to work pretty hard with that dog. Um, but he was sort of uh, my foray into everything. So he had a breed championship and he had the highest level of obedience title at that time. And he did have a Schutzen title. So I did a lot with him and I learned a lot from him. And then I started breeding Belgians at some point. I don't anymore, but I bred for about 15, 20 years. And uh, it's just, it's hard. Breeding dogs is hard. It's very emotionally draining. Uh, so I stopped with that. And now I just buy dogs. And it's great. I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot easier. And so that's where I'm at. I've got a dog named Dice here now. He's, uh, I think he's 15 months old now. He's a handful. He's a uh, Belgian Trevuren from Working Line. So that basically means he's a long coat Malinois. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is registered as a Trevuren because his parents were imported from Europe. So, well, not exactly. But the idea is that if a dog is imported, you can register it correctly as its coat length. So mm -hmm. he is a Trevuren, but he's very much a Malinois. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just, he's uh more dog than I've ever had. So I've always uh, tended towards the sportier French dogs, the kind of French ring, lighter, super social. Mm -hmm. And he's um, not a social dog, um, just a serious, more serious dog, harder dog. Uh, I think a better dog, but I just have to work harder. I have to figure out, I got to figure it out. And so, mm -hmm. I'm, which is awesome, right? Because I'm learning. It's not awesome when I'm training, but it'll be awesome in five years. Yes. 
Have me back. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope. So, th that is very, very, so Dice is, Dice is your only dog at the moment? I have Lyra. Lyra is 10 years old and I, okay. she's from my own breeding program. And uh, I, I kept her because she was so nice and I was raising small children and I wanted a nice family dog and mm -hmm. I got a nice family dog, but she has no drive to work. So I trained okay. her and I just remember one day doing protection work with her and she was coming out on the field and she saw my helper's girlfriend on the side and she's like, oh, I'm going to just go say hi to my friend and I'll be right back. And I, that was the day I went, I don't think this is going to work for me. Like, I don't want to have to, to me, bite work is like all about the dog. And I, my job is to be the brakes on the bus. I do not want to be the gas in protection work. Like that's just not going to work for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, she doesn't have to do that. So then I trained her more doing other sports. And I just found that at the end of the day, what she loves to do is be a pet. And she loves everybody. She gets along with every dog, every person. She's got unbelievable social skills. So I trained her to do a lot of stuff. And I just had no will to push through if you're getting ready for competition, you put so much in it. It's hard. And if you're doing it right, you're out there four or five days a week. You're going to new parks. You're setting up. You're doing all this stuff. And I don't want to do that with a dog who's not buying in. You know, I want to do that with a dog who's, I mean, the problem with I want to have now is he won't stop working. You know, I, that's what I want. I want a dog who's always, now we're going to work, now we're going to work, and who doesn't want to leave the training field. Mm -hmm. And she didn't show me that. So, um, and she's a pet and she's fantastic, but that's her role. And then I have a small terrier mix uh, that I picked up at a seminar. I was teaching and he needed a home and I don't exactly know how it happened, but anyway, he came home with me. So he's like a 10 pound uh, terrier chihuahua mix. And he's the dog I used for all of my demos of uh, small dog stuff and training. Um, he's, he's kind of a ADD kind of like, it took me three years to teach him a send out because he'd just forget what he's doing. So mm -hmm. he'd start going and then like halfway there, he'd be like, what are we up to here? And oh, and while I'm here, there's a squirrel over there. Mm -hmm. So um, he's also a pet. So Dice is kind of exciting because he's the first dog I've had since Reka died. And that was a few years ago that um, I feel pretty confident. I'd like to compete with this dog. I'd like to get back into that side and um, that I think he wants to do it with me. So it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about Reka? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so Reka was, uh, in, in some ways, um, a pivotal dog in my life. So I lost her at 15 and a half, um, about a year and a half ago. And Reka, she struggled when she was about, I started to compete. She had her Schutzen too when she was two. And Schutzen, you can choose to compete on your own field, like a club trial. And with Reka, so she did very well. I think, I think she was a V-rated dog. And then I went to an AKC obedience trial and she had a complete meltdown in the ring. And Reka was uh, the dog that changed me over from force-free training as a way of getting behaviors to a philosophy of cooperation. She's the first dog I had that I didn't say, at the end of the day, you have to do this. I was force-free for a long time and I was making it worth the dog's while, but mentally it was always, you have to do this. And Reka's the dog where I said, no, um, nobody can make another being do anything when they're in the ring. And I spent two years retraining her. I learned a lot from somebody called Leslie McDevitt. She wrote a book called Control Unleashed. I found the book very uncomfortable to read. I was on an airplane. I kept putting it down because it was making me mad. 
And it was saying things like, it's okay for a dog to sniff. Like you bring the dog out, not, not just randomly, but you bring the dog out and you let the dog look at things. And what I learned with Reka is that I'd never socialized her because I used to take her lots of places, but I would go right to work, out of the crate, engagement, high energy. She'd never seen anything. And then when we got to the dog show and there was no food and no toys, and she saw that judge standing there with a trench coat on and a hat, she had a meltdown. And she just looked at me like, all right, well, this is when you come up with my toy because this is not okay. And I didn't have a toy for her. And what I learned from that book is that socialization is not taking dogs places. It's letting them see those places and come to terms with it. So I spent two years basically redoing her socialization. Returned to the ring when she was four. She had a very, very successful career um, at that point. But that was, that was a huge learning opportunity. I bred her a couple of times. Um, she's kind of famous because she was the first AKC obedience champion that's credited with being force free. I suspect there were others, but they just didn't say anything about it or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, there's always others that are just quiet. Um, and she was just a really special dog. And then when she got old, so I, you know, 10, she got fat and really fat. Like I took her to the vet. She was 10 pounds overweight on a Belgian female. And I was kind of appalled and I had to fix that. And so I started walking her. And for the next uh, year, I walked the weight off her and started writing on Facebook uh, stories from Reka's point of view about, you know, it's your fault. I got fat. So <laughs> out we go. Right. And so I wrote a book, which maybe, you know, that conversations with Reka about um, the last years of her life. And what I learned from her, because I'm a, I'm a pretty type A person, I'm driving all the time, I'm busy, and I really did, she slowed me down every day, and everybody knew it. Where's Denise? Don't bother her, she's out with the dog, she's on her walk. Like, it was just like, I'm not around for these two hours, I'm out with my dog, and people were very respectful of that, because they understand old dogs, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think she was just good for me as a person, to look at the world and stop going somewhere, just slow down. And I actually stopped traveling the last several months of her life. And that's hard to do because you schedule seminars about a year out. And I, uh, I realized the end was coming. So when she was 14, I just stopped scheduling. And I actually never went back uh, to traveling. I don't travel anymore. Well, nobody does. Um, but I stopped before that so that I, I wanted to be here when the end was mm -hmm. going to come. And uh, so she gave me a lot kind of personally and also in the world of dog sports. And I think... Um, she made her own little fame, you know? Like when I went to a seminar, not working it, just going, people would walk up and say, how's Reka? Like not, how are you? <laughs> how's Reka? I love Reka. And I loved that. I don't mind that at all, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that, that's Reka's story. Miss her. I'll always miss that dog. She's a great, great dog. Special. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of questions um, about dog training, but also um, uh, the competition portion of it. I know that yeah. you're very, you got some fancy footwork, uh, mm. nice, precise heel work I was reading um, on your website. Um, can you talk about uh, like how you approach um, training the obedience work for um, competition sports? Sure. Um, so my philosophy is that there's a foundation that you set for every dog for every sport. It's the same. It doesn't matter if you're going to do protection sports or agility or obedience. There are certain things I want all dogs to know. So I want all dogs to be able to line up in heel position with their head up. And I need both of us to have a super clear understanding about what that position is. So 
And it's actually amazing how many people don't actually know what their dog's heel position is. And I don't even care what your heel position is, but if I ask you, I need you to be able to tell me my dog's toes line up with my toes or my dog's point of shoulder lines up here. Or, I don't know, whatever your thing is. Because if you don't even, and a lot of people really don't know. Like when you put it to that, they kind of, you know, and I'm like, look, we teach dogs what we want, not what we don't want. So we have to be really clear on that. So there's certain things. All my dogs have to be able to pivot on a disc. Get those front feet still, get that rear end moving. All my dogs have to get on a platform because I can use that. Anytime I, I don't want to have a conversation about straight, I can just put down the platform. It's guaranteed they're going to be straight, right? So I threw your dumbbell. All I care about is the pickup. I don't want to fight about the front. So just put down a platform. Um, I start, I actually just, uh, I'm starting a new program called the High Drive Dog and it's based on Dice's foundation skills for every video I did. They're unedited. They're just, and I did them daily. So like, you'll know how I train a dog. And um, what I realized in reviewing them is that from day one, I teach about eight to 10 skills per session. And a session is about 10 minutes long. So the, like no moss grows on this stone, like get stuff done because I think we tend to drill, but it's just fast. It's like, he's eight weeks old, get up on the platform, a bunch of cookies, throw the cookies off. Great, let's work on scent work. Put the thing down, clicking for that, right? It's just super fast paced, um, lots of movement, lots of flow, uh, lots of, um, structure and decisions on my part like what are we doing now are we socializing are we getting comfortable in this area are we working um tons of play i even to this day i would say my work is about 70 percent play and 30 percent. well it's changing now because he needs more structure in his life and i find he has real arousal issues like he goes super high super fast and i and one thing i'm learning to moderate that is he needs less play he needs a calmer interaction he needs more pause throw the toy bring the toy back to position pause like i can't do as much of the stuff i, I like to do super fast um mm -hmm. but the percentage of play is incredibly high really high i want my dogs making mistakes i want them learning right away nothing bad happens when you make a six you know and i cheer if i'm talking you're probably wrong which is interesting right i use silence as a marker as correct behavior because competitions are silence. So if I'm not talking, keep doing what you're doing. That's your bridge. Life is good. If I'm talking, I'm going, you're trying so hard. Just a little bit more. Get your, yeah. boom, right there. Mark that. Now I go quiet. Mm -hmm. I feed that. Um, there is a phase when they're young and I'm just chattering all the time because they're cute. And that's what you do with puppies. And that's fine. But I do start getting more conscious of it as they get more developed. Um, and I love obedience. And so when you love something, guess what? Like you do it well, your dogs love it. Every dog I have loves to heal. Even the terrier is super, super cute with the healing because I love it and it's my default. So when I'm not sure what to do and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, I just fall into healing because it's rhythmic and calming. Um, so I guess that's kind of, that's kind of how I approach um, obedience. To me, it's just a game. The word obedience is seriously problematic because it's not what my dogs do. It's just um, a fun, interactive thing. And I'm always thinking about cooperation. Mm -hmm. So drives and control are two sides of the same coin. My dogs mm -hmm. are just as happy to let things go as they are to bite them because you can't bite if you don't let go. And that lesson starts at eight weeks of age. Like you, you can have this all to yourself. That's worth a five. But if you give that up, I'm going to make it a 10. And they learn that. And so that's where I get a lot of cooperation out of my dogs. And it also creates a lot of sensitivity. So mm -hmm. today... My dog um, bit my hand by accident and um, it hurt. And I went, ow, because it hurt. And somebody said to me, because I videotaped it and I put it on Facebook. I was talking about punishment. I'm very open about my training. 
And she said, oh, that works because he's sensitive. And I said, no, I make him sensitive. All of my dogs are sensitive. And they're sensitive because of how I train them and how I raise them. That they, they care about cooperating because if you make a dog do something, then they learn to resist you. It's just like a person. Like if somebody makes you do something, then you learn to resist. So then as soon as they're out of the room, you do what you want. And I work really hard to never fight with my dogs, never fight with my dogs. And so then when I am upset with them, they, they're taken aback. Like, what happened? You're unhappy with me. And so that, that makes them handler sensitive, um, which I, is useful for my, my interests. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, the transition from force-free training to balance training? Whose transition? Yours. Mm, I'm, most people would call me force-free okay. right now. Yeah, I think most people would say I'm force-free. It's complicated because um, words are just words. So force-free means, as far as I can tell, most people think it means not using tools. Most people think balanced means using tools. But when we see balanced, I don't know of a balanced trainer who actually tries to use all, all four quadrants evenly. That makes no sense. That's illogical, right? That wouldn't make any sense. You would use the ones you want. So balanced is a poor choice of word. Force-free is a poor choice of word because that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a force-free trainer. Nobody can be force-free. Mm -hmm. I think I'm on the more balanced side of the force-free scale because my dogs all know what no means in the house. I don't use it in training because I always want my dogs to think they're right. If they don't think they're right, I'll deal with it. But I don't want them to know it because I can get more of what I want in the ring if the dog is sure they're right, even when they're wrong. But in the house, my dogs know no. And it's not no. It's just no. And no means whatever you're thinking about right now, stop thinking about that because that's not going to happen. Like, it, And I'm not, I'm comfortable with that. And I think some force-free trainers are not comfortable with that. So, um, and that's okay. And I, I've actually started not labeling myself and started talking more about the fact that I think those labels are not helpful. And I think they're harming the entire dog training industry. Um, I think it's preventing us from learning from other people. I think it, it makes balanced trainers uncomfortable learning from force-free because they feel judged. And I think it makes force-free trainers uncomfortable learning from balanced trainers because it means that they're going to the dark side and, I just don't think this is healthy. I have friends all over the spectrum because I've been around forever and I respect people all over the spectrum and I can sit down and have a beer with that person and agree to disagree at the end of the day. And it's not, my life does not ride on that. And I'm, and somebody asked me, cause I'm a pretty big advocate for this um, approach to dog training. I'd like to see a new center, which is just called excellent training. A hardcore compulsion trainer is not an excellent trainer. They're abusive to dogs. A force-free trainer on the other edge who doesn't get the job done is not an excellent trainer. They're not getting the job done. If somebody hires you, you need to get the job done. You need to figure it out. Excellent trainers are all over the spectrum. And they should have more in common than a good, excellent trainer and a poor force-free trainer and an excellent balance trainer and a poor quality balance trainer. And so I think it's just not helpful for us to make this division. To me, it's, are you an excellent trainer? And how do you decide? Did you get the job done? Is the dog happy? Is the handler happy? And is society happy? And to me, if you look at it like that and you give everybody some weight, then we can make training go forward. But as long as we have this kind of resistance, I, I struggle to see how we can grow as a community. And so that's, it's a big deal to me to start um, changing how we are, um, how we're interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. I love that. Completely agree that labeling is not helping. Not helping. 
Um, okay, I'm gonna take some of these questions. Um, how often do you give young five to 10 month dogs days off from training? Never, never. I love to train dogs. So that's what we do, we train. Um, how do we stop, how do we stop our Belgian Malinois with his sleep aggression? I don't know what sleep aggression is. Are you saying he, in the middle of the night, just leaps up and attacks? That's scary shit, if that's happening. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that one is. But at the very least, put the dog in a crate while you work it out, because that sounds scary. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Um... When I get home, Marmite uh, is excited, but turns to frenzied biting, uh, yeah. sit, sit tying her up, greeting when calm. Yeah. So that's an over arousal issue. And Belgians, I don't know what kind of dog yours is, but Belgians are famous for over arousal and they get stuck really easily. So with things like that, what I do, I don't think your dog can control the biting because they're biting as a reaction to their emotional state. And if you actually punish it, it makes them worse because now they get more frantic. So what you want to do is reduce the emotional load on the dog. Food is your friend. So keep the food outside the door, box of Cheerios, whatever. When you walk in the house, take a scoop, throw them on the floor. What it does, it gets the dog's head down. So it causes conflict for the dog because one side of the dog wants to eat the Cheerios and the other side wants to greet you. But in the process of having that conflict, the dog gets used to you being there and that calms them down. And then by the time you've petted them a few times, they don't act like a fool. And now they get a better habit. Because if they get that habit of, I call that a hypergreeter, if they get that hypergreeter habit and then they get in trouble because they hurt you, because they do. You know, I used to have one that would come up and hit me in the face. That's really not fun. Um, and then I get mad because it hurt, but then that would make her worse because she's not choosing that behavior. She's just hysterical. So try the food and see if that, see if that helps you out. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, Kodiak's Golden Life. Is it possible to train a Golden Retriever competition obedience or are they more like your family dogs and it would be too much for an amateur? Golden Retriever is the number one obedience dog. So I would say that you should be just fine. Like when you're at the National Obedience Championships, nine out of 10 of the top dogs were Golden Retrievers. They are, in my opinion, the quintessential obedience dog. So out you go, go, get your dog trained. Oh, who's the best? Malinois or German Shepherd? Oh, <laughs> can't answer that. I, you know what? I just love a good dog. I love any good dog. If you walk up with a good dog, I'm going to love your dog. I don't care what breed it is. If it's a good dog and it wants to work, we're going to have a good time. Okay, nice. Okay, moving six-month-old um, pups, focus and excitement from toy reward to interaction with handler. Uh, that's young. I don't know what breed you have. Um, some dogs, the higher the drive the dog, the harder it is to play with them because they bite. It's all they do. They bite all the time. So I work on it and I start when they're eight weeks old. Like my goal with Dice was to cuddle him before his wool fell out. I, I did not succeed. I did not get there. <laughs> I tried. I call him my velociraptor, but it's getting better. Every day away from training, work on petting your dog petting your dog and then scratching your dog and then raising the energy just a little bit and work to get your dog interacting with you completely away from training. Cause you never use a reinforcer until your dog wants it. Right? So you would never use a toy in training if you hadn't already developed your dog's toy play. 
And you would never use food in training if your dog didn't want the food. And you would never use play in training unless you've already taught the dog to love play. So separate that issue out. Go, I, I do it in my living room. My dog knows. If I go in the living room, he's all happy because we're going to play there. Um, and I practice sitting down. I practice standing up. I practice moving. I practice being really still because I need all of those things in competition. It depends on the competition. In some competitions, there's a lot of standing. Uh, like Schutzen's very formal. They have rules. God, do they have rules. And you can't like praise your dog when you're moving. Like my dogs usually just leap around me. They don't think that's funny. I think it's hysterical. They do not. So he also has to know if I did that sport, I'm not planning on it, but he has to know how to engage with me in a sit, right? I need to be able to reward him. And I practice uh, in other sports where you're allowed more movement. I, I would prefer that my dog play with me in movement. So we practice. So think about it like that and see if that helps you out. Okay. Mr. Oscar, Elevated Canine Academy. Hey, ways to build motivation for food. Oh, there's so many food games. Um, so one thing you want to know is anything you hide will become more valuable to your dog. It doesn't even have to be food. Like dogs that are afraid of their dumbbells, I tell people to hide them and teach the dog to seek them. And the reason is the scenting, the act of using your nose builds the, they call that the seeking system in the brain. And it's super healthy for dogs. They really like it. So the first thing I would think about is if you're trying to build arousal, throwing food games, like throw one cookie and when he's eating it, throw the other one the other way. And then set a goal for yourself. Like say something like, I want to throw 10 cookies in one minute, right? Because that'll speed you right up. And then time it, make it real. Like throw those cookies, dog eats one, come! Throw the other one the other way. And don't cheat. You can't drop it at your feet. You got to throw. So make it really, really fun. Now start throwing those cookies in places where the dog's going to actually have to put out some effort to get the cookie, right? So like under your dining room table. So the dog has to work its way between the chair legs or around boxes. Make the dog push through and throw a little bit of energy. Rarely are you going to just hand your dog a cookie. Make the dog chase your hand for the cookie. Make your dog jump up and grab the cookie. Make your dog spin for the cookie. The more things you do to pair arousal with the food, the more value you're going to get out of each cookie that you use. The other thing is really think about what you use and when. If I'm doing, if I'm working on arousal control for my dog, I throw a lot of food on the ground. I do this all the time. I use kibble because he's going to eat 100 pieces. Or if I'm doing rapid fire food into his mouth on a platform, like one every second, I do a lot of that with him, kibble because it's just quantity. But if he's going to work hard, I'm going to bring out something good. I'm going to make it worth his while. And he knows the difference. So you can do things both with your choice of food and how you use the food to make it more valuable to your dog. Awesome. Okay. What's your all-time favorite trick and why? I'm kind of embarrassed because I'm sort of lazy about teaching tricks. Um, all of my dogs can march because all I have to do is rock back and forth and they do it naturally because they think we're going to heal. So they'll just lift one foot and the other, they'll go back and forth so we can march side by side. Is that a trick? Um, let me think. What does Brito have? He would be the most likely to have a trick. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's cute. He can bounce in the air in front of me. And when you're tiny, that's pretty cute. Uh, so the little dog, the little terrier, he can bounce. Um, Dice can bounce, but I don't think I've taught him anything cute yet. I'll have to do, I'll have to work on that. Thank you for the reminder. Well, I'll have, give me suggestions and I'll work on it. Scent discrimination, by the way, is the classic trick. Cause then, so you just do it with, you know, handler scent, but then you get out like dollar bills or something. You can knock the socks off adults, kids, whatever you put out like four ones and one ten, and you have them put out the ones and you put out the ten. So now your scent is on it. And you tell the dog to find the 10. 
I did that when the 49ers were in a football game a couple years ago in the Super Bowl. And I had my dog say which one was going to win and how much money we would bet on it. Sadly, I lost. He got it wrong. He got my scent right. <laughs> Question, have you ever thought about doing uh, dog dancing? Um, my dogs have the skills for it. Like I teach them those things, but um, you know, I'm not a competitor. I know that sounds strange to people. I'm a dog trainer. I, I love to train. The reason I compete is because I want to show my training, but not because I want to compete. I'm not a competitor. Um, mm -hmm. So the day my dog finishes a title is the day I retire them. I do not continue. I, I've even gone home. I, I entered a show. I was in two shows the same day. My dog got her championship in the morning. I didn't even go to the afternoon show. So it's just not my driver. Um, and so to take on another sport, I would have to have a driver. But I, oh, I did like, I, for, I have, now I'm thinking of all the things I taught my dogs. Like Reka could heal on her back legs for a long time. Like walk like a human next to me, no matter what I did. She'd just be on it and her little front feet would be down. It was very cute. She could back up 25 feet between my legs. So she would be out there and I could get her to run back, run backwards between my legs. Pretty cute. Um, she learned how to unfetch the dumbbell. So she would run out and put it down and come back without it so that I could send her. Uh, I taught, I forgot about these things. I taught her to do the figure eight on her, on her own. I would just do the cues the way they would give them in the ring and she would do it all by herself. I just thought that was fun, entertaining. Um, so they have the skills. I just don't put them together into a pattern. Uh, I think it is one of the hardest sports out there though, because you have to do it to the music. So if your timing gets off a little bit, now what are you going to do? And then you're stressed, you know, in competition, you're a little bit stressed. So now what do you do when your dog gets a little flatter or a little higher and now they're doing things faster or slower than usual? I think it's incredibly challenging sport. I have so much respect for those folks who are doing the higher levels of canine freestyle. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, um, if you want to see Unfetch the Dumbbell, I think there's a YouTube video. If you search, search board dog board handler and you'll see her doing scent articles on the trampoline and it just all kinds of weird things I thought of. Uh, okay. Can you explain your scatter use technique? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scatter is a way to lower arousal. I tend to think about when I think about behavior and training, I tend to think in terms of arousal. So what that means is I don't care if the dog is sitting, a dog can be sitting and at a 10 in arousal or a dog can be sitting and be at a one in arousal. And I like dogs at a certain level of arousal to train them. So I, I like dogs higher than most people. So for healing, I want my dog at a solid eight. If he's at a 10, he's going to be squeaking and whining and carrying on and biting me. That's no good. So an eight is just about right for me. Most people do not like that. Most people would want their dog at like a five. When I send the dog for a retrieve, I want my dog lower because he's already obsessive about things thrown. So I want him at about a six. The way you raise and lower arousal is your choices. So I don't even start an exercise if my dog isn't in the arousal that I want them. I do something. So things I could do, scatter is the classic one. So when I go to a new environment, if I throw kibble on the ground and my dog cannot or will not eat it, what they're telling me, if he's not interested in that kibble, he's telling me he's too high to work. Because when I start working, he's going to be a screaming, meany mess. And I don't want to work a dog like that because um, he's out of control. And then when I give him cues, he's not going to hear them. He's like, ah, and I've seen, I've seen him do this. You know, I say, sit ah, like that. I need my dog to be able to hear me. And the way I get that is arousal control and scatter is my number one technique for taking my dog down. And not only that, if he cannot go get on his platform, 
get off his platform and eat the cookies on the ground. And if I give a cue like down, sit, come, I need him to instantly leave the food on the ground and follow the cue. If you can't do those three things, I don't have enough dog to train. So I don't. I'll throw more food on the ground. And he, it is not a choice to eat the food on the ground. If he doesn't eat it, I wait. I'm like, no problem. I'll do other stuff. I'll give him food from the hound. But until he calms himself down enough to eat the food, we are not going to work. And he's not working for food. He's working for toys. So, I mean, if your dog is working for food, this still works. Just use lower value food in your scatter than you use in your training. But that's what I use scatter for. Uh, I also use a platform because this dog, some dogs movement is um, calming and some dogs stillness is calming. And for this particular dog, stillness is calming. So I can't let him move because if he moves, he winds up. So we also use the plat uh, platform a lot to calm arousal. And if there ever comes a day that I actually need to raise arousal, that's a little hard for me to believe. But if it happens, I would just move him in a circle a couple times and that'll have him through the roof. And then I could go from there. So that's what I use it for. Okay. Um, and uh, have you ever used scatter during a search to help a dog who is anxious about the environment? Yes. This is all stuff I really got from Leslie McDevitt. The idea of sniffing free food, this is like not in my mental model. Um, I was a very operant model. If you do this, then I do that. And here I am, my dogs make errors, I give them food all the time. And the reason I'm giving them food is to take the sting out of the mistake because I have dogs that are very responsible for their work. So if I ask my dog to back up and sit and he backs up and lays down, I know the second he laid down that he knew he was wrong. And I don't want that to impact him. So I just go in and give him a cookie. I don't give him the toy, but I give him the cookie and say, good boy. And the next time he'll get it right. If you don't do that, what happens is they start to get frantic and frantic dogs don't hear well and dogs that hear well don't hit their positions correctly. So for me, that's another exercise all about getting the arousal where I want to see it. Any idea how to teach a dog who is sitting and facing me to switch and sit <laughs> facing 180 degrees in the opposite direction? So it's probably going to be easier to teach it in reverse order. So tell the dog to sit, stand behind the dog, and then feed the dog, and then say, come, and have the dog turn around. Does that make sense? So start it with the backwards position. Just tell the dog to stay, and you go behind them. Um, and then come and get the dog back. Stay, go behind them, come, get the dog back. Now... Instead of going all the way behind their tail, go 90% behind their tail. Cue it. Food position is really going to matter here. So where are you reinforcing the dog? Make sure the reinforcement is exactly where you want the dog's head, regardless of where the dog shows up. So that's easier to explain in a front position. People do this all the time. They say, my dog doesn't sit close. Fine, show me. They call the dog. The dog sits a, a foot away. True, not close. And they reach out and hand the dog a cookie a foot away. So they just train the dog to do that. What I would say is call the dog. The dog sits 12 inches away. That's fine. You don't have to correct it. Hand the cookie to the dog. Your wrist should always be on your body. It doesn't matter the height of the dog, but the back of your wrist should always be on your body if the dog is correct. Offer the dog the cookie. The dog will be like, oh, look at that. The dog will scooch forward and take the cookie. Do it again. Oh, look at that. You do that 10 times and your dog's going to get really tired of scooching. And on the 11th time, your dog's going to sit properly. And then you're going to say, aren't you amazing? And give the dog several cookies. Food placement, reward placement is probably my number one technique for precision. If you feed the dog's head exactly where it belongs in heel position, it's really hard for them to be out of heel position because they're motivated to be where the food is. So why would they lag, forge, or heel wide unless there's another issue, an emotional issue? They're going to be where the cookie's going to show up. And eventually, if you want to be a little mean about it, and I have to admit I probably have done this, 
If the dog is not in position, I am more likely to offer the cookie. But the thing is, the cookie's on a, the, it's on a timer. So I offer it for one second. If most unfortunately you were not where you should have been, then you won't be eating that one because uh, you weren't there. So pretty quickly the dog, that's called the cookie you're not gonna get. Most dogs figure out pretty quickly. And I think I'll stay there and be ready. Otherwise I might not get that cookie. What do you do to increase focus in a new environment? Time. Time. I, do n I don't even have a focus command. I don't have a way to tell my dogs to look at me. They just look at me because it's in their best interest. In a new place, I will not start working until the dog forces me to work. I mean, literally. And I call that engagement training. I just stand there. I'll sit in a lawn chair for two hours if I have to. Until the dog says, I'm bored. I have nothing else to do. How about you? Now, when the dog says that to me, they're trained. I train my dogs to do things to push me. So, uh, dice bounces in front of me. So when I say, okay, that means if I'm, I'm ready, if you are, then he turns in front of me and he tends to just jump up and down. That's what I want to see. And then I'll even say, are you sure? Like I'll turn away a little bit and he has to come back in front, bounce more. His job at this age is to talk me into work. My job is to show up. So if he loses focus, the punishment is I go, oh, I misunderstood. I thought you were ready. I guess not here. Let's go back to scatter. And he's like, shit, <laughs> that's not what I had in mind. And then they start self-training not to look away because then they lose access to work and work is everything. But the big critical piece there is don't start working a dog who's not telling you they want to work and don't cheat. I see this all the time. I'm watching you I'm sitting there watching someone like, shh, shh. I'm like, you think I don't hear that? I'm <laughs> right here. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Stop begging. If you spend a half hour in a new place doing absolutely nothing, Absolutely nothing. I know it'll kill you. You'll get used to it. Think of it as den time. If you do nothing for half an hour and worst case scenario, you go home and you never worked your dog, that will be the most impactful lesson of your dog's life. If your dog does not opt in. I know it's boring. You just got to take my word for it. When you do this repeatedly in new environments, pretty darn soon, you're going to have a new problem. Your dog's going to ask to work before they should. They're not really ready. So then you have to be like, no, no, no. I know you're staring at me. You still don't get to work yet. You have to eat your scatter. You got to look around here. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that then you just can't get them off of you. Does play look different for you that is used for reinforcement and training versus just hanging around the house? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, I'm trying to think back because I don't use play as a reinforcer with dice. Not yet. We're still using toys. And frankly, I'm trying to calm him down, not wire him up. So Usually his play is a calming play. But looking back, I had a dog, Kisu, who I did not use food or toys in her career for competition after I started at the journey level, at the competitive level. And there was a reason. It's a long story. But there was a reason for that. So for the last six months, there were no food and toys in her training. And the only reinforcer she got was play. And that was a very interesting experience because she can always, my dogs can opt out of work. So she had to decide if working with me for play was worth her while. And some days it wasn't. And she'd say, I'm going to go in the house. And that was totally fine. And then eventually she never opted out. She decided the value of work and the value of playing with me was worth more. But it did put a lot of responsibility on me to figure out how for that dog, she needed me to play with her so that she would feel reinforced. And that was kind of obvious because if I got it wrong, she just left. And since my dogs are allowed to leave training, I can read them well. If you do things that don't allow your dog to opt out, then you don't really have that information, but my dogs are welcome to opt out. So I do have that information. Um, 
around the house is going to be more, you know, scratching their heads, belly rubs, that kind of thing. Most rings, it would be a little, I, I mean, do it if you want, tell me how it goes. But most people don't stop in the middle of a competition and give their dogs a belly rub. I have seen it. It was the most endearing thing on the planet. But I probably wouldn't get away with that. Like, if you have a dog that's completely not traditional, like you have a great day, and everybody's cheering for you, because everything that dog is a struggle. If your dog lays down on the ground and gets a belly rub, you will be the darling of the party. With my Belgians, the judges are kind of afraid of me and my dog. So my job is to try to give them space so they're not afraid. And that's generally keeping the dog pretty under control, pretty close to me. Very cool. Um, yes, the, this live will be available, H4 to EL. Um, where do you see the future of dog training going? Depends if I get my way. And I am an optimist, so I'll just assume. I think we are going to, I think balanced trainers are going to adopt more of the force breeds um, community's mindset because it's very effective. And in my opinion, balanced trainers, having done it much longer, the, the tradition of balanced training is uh, practical. So the balanced trainers who have the more known reputations tend to be the practitioners. That is not true in the forestry world. In the forestry world, the ones who do the speaking and the talking are usually not practitioners. They're usually the scientists or um, researchers or um, lecturers, whatever, right? So we mm -hmm. come from very different traditions. And I'm in an unusual situation because I am a practitioner. And, uh, but that's not the norm in the force-free community. As a result, my experience is that the balanced community has better trainers in the sense of flow. They're much better at making things happen, moving fast, staying with their dog. Whereas in the positive reinforcement tradition, they're better at teaching precision behaviors, but they really struggle when they don't have their food and when they don't have, um, because they don't know how to do flow. They've, they've trained quietly, clicking, staring at the dog. They don't get out enough. They don't generalize enough. They don't tend to value competition. And so their skill set is different. So I think they're actually better at teaching precision behaviors. And I think they understand dog training better. But I think the balanced trainers are better at actually getting it done. Now, if balanced trainers learned the things that force-free trainers knew, they would rock because then they would learn these. And we're starting to see it, actually. I'm starting to see more of it in the last. When did Ivan show up? I knew Ivan. I, I, he used to live here. So we trained together 15 years ago before he moved to Florida, 15, 20 years ago. Michael also, well, Michael still lives here, Michael Ellis. Um, so the three, I, I knew Ivan and Michael when they trained together. And Ivan, I think, was a huge, huge initial influence on the quality of training. And then Michael, I think because of his school and decisions he has made has really pushed some elements of higher quality training into the balanced communities. But I think the balanced community is unaware of um, some of the really good force-free trainers and, and would benefit. So if I have my way in the next 10 years, the force-free community will pull more of that flow element and the expectation. And the, just to say, I always tell people, my experience, the force-free trainers assume they're going to get it done. And they're goal-driven. And the, the plus-R trainers tend to be process-driven. And they don't sweat it too much if they don't get it done. But that mindset is actually a problem. Because if you're not goal-driven, you'll have a tendency to go nowhere. So my personally, my favorite people to work with are crossover trainers from balanced to force-free. 
because they already have the expectation of success. They already have the quickness of timing. Leash Pops teaches you quickness of timing. All I tell people is everywhere you have the urge to pop, give your dog a cookie, you'll be fine. That's all you need. There, I just, I just solved 90% of your training problems. Um, that mindset, I think if we get that, I think training will be much better off um, in 10 years. I would love to see the whole compulsion thing just literally fall into the ocean. It's very stressful for me, some of the stuff I see on IG of um, very unhappy dogs, very stressed dogs in the name of um, making the owner happy because they can now walk their reactive dog down the street. And I'm like, yeah, but why? They should have gone alone. The dog doesn't even want to be there. So don't worry about walking the dog. Let the dog stay home. You go for a walk. Um, and I, I, that bothers me. So I'd like to see the compulsion trainers kind of pushed off the edge. And I would also, I hate to say it, I'd like to see some of the force-free trainers who um, are a little too dog-focused. See, my, my thing is dog handler and society all have rights. I believe this. Everybody has a say. And I, I, I cannot only align around the dog as the learner, because I think the owner is also a learner. And this matters. Um, I'll give you an example. I, an older woman used to train with me. She had a working line German Shepherd, and she was in her 80s. She was all of 80 pounds. The dog must have outweighed her by a lot. And every time she showed up for her lesson, the dog showed up on a prong collar. I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm not going to tell her to put the dog on a flat collar and have her break her hip. I mean, that's it's not how I train. And when she got here, we switched because that's not what I do. I don't even use a leash. So it didn't even matter. And she did well with that dog. She had some nice titles. But I think in terms of dogs handler society. So if a handler will not or cannot do things I prefer, then I'm not going to say anything about it. It's just not my place. Uh, I may not do certain things. I might refer to somebody else if I'm not comfortable, but I'm not, I'm just not going to get in people's space. Um, I would like to see the extremist force-free community who only think the dog matters and think that people should basically put their entire lives on hold to accommodate a dog's training plan, I would like to see that go away. And I would also like to see the heavy compulsion trainers kind of go away as, as well. So get that middle, that excellence. Let's get that middle going. And I don't mean middle about balance and force free. I just mean excellent training that turns out a happy dog and a happy handler and a happy society. That's the goal. Very well said. Denise, run, run for a doggy training president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a company, though, you know, there's, there's, this is not new. I think there's lots of good souls out there. Canine Paradigm, I, walked, I talked with them several months ago. They have that same way of thinking. Like, we got to stop the division, and we need to find – we need to find our common ground. And we can end with agree to disagree. There's no problem there. But the conversations need to happen and a little bit less stone throwing and a little bit more conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you for being a leader in your. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to also ask you bef before we um, wrap up, I want to ask you if you feed your dogs raw or kibble. <laughs> I usually feed raw, um, but Dice eats a lot of kibble because of his training plan. And so I'm actually, I, I almost, I, I've fed raw for 15 years. Um, so it's kind of like, there's a bag of kibble in there. So when I can, I'll probably go back to raw cause it is my preference. Mm -hmm. uh, and why? Um, when I switched my dogs to raw, I saw a huge improvement in their teeth and in their breath. And, um, if my dog, my dogs are house pets, you know, so if they're going to be breathing on me, I want them to smell nice. <laughs> so it was just, mm -hmm. truly just, it was that simple. I really like what I got. Um, 
And then just kind of philosophically, if somebody said to me, they could feed me some pellets three times a day that were perfect, right amount of carbs and fats and proteins, and they were going to be perfect. Did I think that was a better idea than fresh food? I kind of struggle with that. Like, that's not logical to me that we could know more than, you know, and I always say like, okay, there's vitamins and there's minerals and there's all these things. But what about the things we don't even know about? Like, I'm sure there's other things we don't even know they exist. And if we don't even know they existed, we put them in those kibble pellets. So maybe we didn't. And maybe it matters that we're hitting on things that we don't even know about. Like some of this gut health stuff is fascinating. I don't know if you've even looked at it. But I mean, you, you give a dog a probiotic and his anxiety goes away. You give a dog a probiotic, he stops being ag aggressive. Like the, the relationship between the gut and the brain, some really interesting stuff going on. And so then I think, well, but does the kibble know how? Does it have it in there? So I just feel like I might be luckier if I feed a raw diet. But I also think some dogs do super well on kibble and don't do well on raw. And I got no, if you want to feed kibble and you're happy, dogs are happy. I, I don't have a word to say about that. Very cool. Um, and out of the agility tracking, all the stuff you do, um, what is your uh, favorite thing to teach? Right now I'm doing Mondio ring. So okay. I'm preparing dice for Mondio. I don't know if I'll ever do AK. I'm just not in an AKC place right now. So my goal with him truly is Mondio ring. And then, you know, we'll just kind of see, see what we got. Can you talk a little bit about that? My change, my transition. Uh, I have a short attention span. And so I just, I, I, I feel like I did that. Uh, I got two AKC obedience champions and it's a lot of work. It's a grind. You need points. So you need a hundred points and you need to win. You need first and second place or you don't get any points. And that means you go to a whole lot of dog shows and I live in a very competitive area. So I had been to a dog show where I had a 199 out of 200 and I did not place, never mind getting points. So you get these beautifully trained dogs, you know, and I don't think I'm good for the grind. You know, I, I just, you got to be at a certain place in your life to want to do that. And I don't think I'm there right now. I just, my competitive spirit has been sucked right out of me. Um, I love Mondio because it's hard and it's different and it's new and you don't know what they're going to throw at you. And on any given day, you can go in there and fail because the scenario was one you just didn't think it through well enough. And somebody else thought through that scenario and can do well. Um, my experience so far is that the community around Mondio is very open to uh, people who choose to train differently. So um, at this time, I've gotten no grief for the fact that I have some, uh, I don't use compulsion in the bite work. They just say, well, how do you want me to handle it if he doesn't let go? And then we have a conversation and that's the end of the conversation. That's not true in all sports. Some sports are very um, rigid and maybe threatened by alternatives. And so they're not going to come right to your face and say they're not going to do it. But there's little things a person does when you need a helper, little things they can do that will make your dog successful or not successful. So what you really want is someone who's at least intrigued by what you're doing. I don't care what they do with their own dogs, but they have to at least care enough about what I'm doing that they're willing to play my game. And so far, I have found that in the Mondio community. And uh, so that makes it in engaging for me. Um, the AKC environment is also very tight. Uh, I think it's hard on dogs. It's stressful. I think the Mondio thing will be more fun for my dog. So those are kind of all, all pieces that have sort of, you know, played into it over time. Tracking, when I used to do Schutzen, the fields are all going away. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it gets harder and harder to find a tracking field. You're poaching all the time, which is really stressful. You know, you're on somebody else's, hey, little dog, um, on somebody else's um, fields and 
I, uh, that's, I don't like that. <laughs> it makes me really uncomfortable. So that sport got hard. Come on up. You come up. Good boy. Um, that got harder. So I think that's probably why I've, I've transitioned away. Mm-hmm. I would love to do herding again, but I don't have the right dog for it. I think herding is awesome. So cool to watch a dog's natural inclination. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe someday I'll do that again. Very cool. How do you, how do you suggest pet owners figure out which sport they can casually just for fun engage in with their dog outside of trick training? I usually suggest that people start with nose work. And the reason I like nose work is the dog loves it and it teaches people to read dog behavior. Uh, And it tends to be a very supportive sport. Like you could have a reactive dog. You're not going to get shamed. You know, they're, they tend to be very uh, open to um, dogs that have issues. I don't know too many people who don't like nose work and the dogs really like it. So if I was telling somebody for an entry level sport, I would tell them to look at nose work. Um, I have an online program called Benzie team titles. And through the online program, you can get uh, foundation titles. Like I was talking about spin on a disc, get on a platform. Those are all foundation things that we test and you can earn titles that way, or you can do our nose work problem uh, program online. Uh, I think online titling is a softer introduction. So if a person does decide they want to compete in anything, I kind of encourage that first, because then you separate out the stress of I taught all the exercises from the stress of actually going to an event. And everybody's watching me, which they're not, but you think they are. So, you know, um, I think that helps ease the ease the route a little bit for people. Mm-hmm. I Okay, from Keely, I really feel there needs to be a rational governing body do you agree and if so how would you suggest pushing for regulation in the industry so um that's a wonderful question it's a very hard one for me because i am not a black and white person i am a shades of gray person and so when i look at the issue of regulation i struggle with how that would be done in a way that tests like the the concern I have about the current tests is I don't think they actually test your ability to, to do it. I think they test your knowledge. But like I could study skiing for 10 years and I could tell you I could be the most obnoxious human being on the planet telling you about skiing. And that doesn't mean I can ski. So it bothers me when there are certifications that have no expectation of demonstrated ability and hours of experience is not demonstrated ability i really want demonstrated ability and i don't know how to do that because that starts getting very expensive and how do you make it fair like what if i don't have any dogs that are like maybe i have really difficult dogs that i don't have answers to those questions um so i don't know what the answer is i am personally always a huge fan of education that's my thing that is all i do these days i educate people and i do a lot of it for free because i believe in it so much I want to educate people. I, I'm not convinced that regulation is the way to improve skills as much as open access education that makes people want to learn what you have to offer. I mean, if I have all these videos on my website, you know, we have to pay for them, but regardless, for 20 bucks, you can learn, you can watch something for an hour and learn how to handle counter surfing, for example. Okay, you just picked up some really good information. I want to motivate people in that direction to want to learn, to want to be better, to raise up the status of dog trainers and dog training. Um, so I'm not saying I think regulation is bad. I'm just saying that I have this kind of chronic discomfort. If I walk into a seminar and I train 10 people and 10 dogs, and I can't tell you which five are certified, and which five are not to me, that's a problem. And right now that's my experience. I haven't seen that the certification was the dividing line that I would like to see 
going forward, which doesn't mean I don't think it's a good idea. I just think it needs to be thought through with some care. Thank you for that. Um, let me see what else I have here. I think, oh, wait, let me, let me check these questions and yes, guys, I'll, I'm saving this and I'll post this after. Yeah, and then I could probably share it too, huh? After you post it, I can let people know where to find it. Okay, I'll do that. So if you get confused or lost, I'll put it in my stories and that should take you back over here. Perfect. Okay, my six-month-old sheep-a-doodle puppy has started to become extremely reactive to squirrels, even when she sees them from inside the house. Tits. Um, okay, I'll tell you a quick story. So I had a similar problem, except it is a cat. I have the scariest cat on the planet. Like I'm genuinely afraid of this cat. And uh, she's not right in the head. And anyway, so she's an outdoor barn cat. So she comes up to my house to entertain herself, I think. And my dogs lose their shit. I mean, it's intense. And if they don't lose their shit, she throws herself against the window. I've seen her do it so that they'll do it. And I worked on training it. I had them all down today. I was doing calming exercises. I did a million things. I worked on it for six months. It worked, but it was a lot of work. I put up window film. Oh my God. Five minutes. Go to Home Depot. Buy the window film. It's going to cost you 20 bucks. I've never taken that off my windows ever again. My problem is solved. The dogs can't see through it. The light comes in the house. $25 for all that happiness. I spent, I can't count the hours. There's your answer. Take the issue off the table because you don't want your dog practicing the behavior. The more they practice it, the more they wind up, the worse it's going to get. Just make it not happen. It disappears. Put, put the window film up. And if you think it's ugly, don't worry about it. Tell yourself in three weeks you'll be taking it down. But you won't. In three years, you're going <laughs> to love that window film. It is still going to be on your windows. You'll see. You send me a note in three weeks and tell me, oh, I'm never, never taking this off my windows. <laughs> the hack. Window film. It's, it's the trick. Um, Denise, thank you so much. It was nice chatting with you. Um, I'll... I'll post this and um, good luck with Mondial Ring and with, um, d d with d d d what's your dice. dark? Dice. 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 Yeah. Dice. Thank you. I really had a fun time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay. All right, guys. Thank you for Have being here. Night. All right. Thank bye -bye. you guys.